0: Welcome to the City Church Cardiff podcast. We're an Elam Pentecostal church in the centre of Cardiff dedicated to bringing hope in the name of Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you're inspired and impacted by this message. It can sometimes feel like we are caught between the deep promises of Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted and the soul-searching words of both Mary and Martha to Jesus when he arrives in Bethany after their brother Lazarus has died and his timing seems to be off because he's too late. In John 11, in verses 21 and 32, both sisters say the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The words are saturated with disappointment and longing and perhaps despair. Granted that Martha seems to have had an expectation of Jesus that Mary didn't have because in verse 22 of John 11, she says, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Nevertheless, we can often find ourselves caught in this maelstrom of emotion when we lose someone that we love. How do we deal with grief? What are we supposed to do with it? How do we live with it? How do we make our way through it? When my nephew died in 2014 I was devastated but my story of grief goes back beyond that. In 2002 when my dad died very unexpectedly and very suddenly I believed that Jesus could resurrect him. In the stillness of the funeral parlour I laid my hands on my dad's body and I asked Jesus to bring him back to life. He said no. Then, when my sister-in-law committed suicide in July of 2014, I believed that God could have done something then. He said no again. In November of the same year, when my 25-year-old nephew, whom I loved very much, died, I felt as if my world was falling apart, and again in the stillness of a funeral parlour with no one else present, I laid my hands on his body and asked Jesus to give him back to us. He said no. 20 weeks later, in April of 2015, his father, my brother-in-law, broken hearted, committed suicide too. And again, I asked Jesus to resurrect him. And again, Jesus said no. In March of the following year, 2016, when my big brother, whose partner had died in 2014, died, um, I was devastated again. And again, I asked Jesus to give him back to us and again God said no. And then in November of 2016 when my mum died, I didn't ask him. Not because I didn't believe he could, but because I didn't feel that my mum needed to come back, that her life had been completed. Death comes to us in different ways and in different circumstances. It touches us in areas and in contexts that are different depending on the circumstances, depending on the nature of the death, depending on who has died, their age, when it had happened and how it has happened. But death is such an unwelcome part of our lives. I think perhaps that's because we weren't made for death. We were made for life. Death is like a squatter. It moves in and we don't know how to deal with it. Grief comes and occupies our hearts, our homes, our houses, our imaginations. Those of us that have gone through multiple deaths or trauma can sometimes feel like death sticks to us, like grief is a perfume that we wear, that it, it it has clothed us. And we would do anything to get rid of it, and yet we don't always know how to. We can't avoid it. We can't walk past it. We just have to walk through it. Grief and sorrow can be like a thief that steal us of our joy, steal us of our hope, steal us of our faith. It can make us feel as if we're locked in a darkened room. In the words of C.S. Lewis, In a grief observed, no one ever told him that death could feel so much like being drunk. For me, death and grief has felt like being suffocated. Sorrow can feel like it is sucking the air out of our lives, sucking the joy out of us, sucking the hope out of us. Not every believer copes with it in the same way. The circumstances of a loved one's death, the circumstances of our lives, how we are coping, what's happening around us, all has an impact on that. And as you begin this series in Cardiff City Church my prayer is that God will use these weeks to speak into your hearts and into your souls about what good grief looks like. The book that I wrote about that has helped hundreds of thousands of people and I pray that it will help you too. But I don't want to just talk to you about my book today. I want to talk to you about the hope that God brings. The book is available and uh, your team will tell you how you can get a hold of it and I've set up discounts for you and I pray that it will help, that it will comfort, that it will strengthen. It's a raw and honest account of grief, not just mine, but of many people's grief grief as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But think of David, King David, and how he approached grief and sorrow and loss. You might be surprised to know that his life is more speckled with it than you think. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, when he hears of the death of his closest friend Jonathan and Jonathan's father Saul, He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful. Passing the love of women, verse 26. After his affair with Bathsheba, Bathsheba falls pregnant and has a little boy and the boy dies. Before his death, David prays and fasts for seven days and God says no. And when they go to tell him that his son has died, they are worried that he will be angry and he will lash out. And he doesn't. He rises from his grief, he rises from his prayer, and he worships God. And when they ask him why, here is what we are told that David says in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 22. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he shall not return to me. And many of us feel that. We do everything we can for the person that we love. We would pray for their resurrection. We would pray for their healing. We sorrow and heartbreak when they die. And yet at the same time, we have to work out somehow how we can go on after they have died. And then when David's adult and rebellious son Absalom dies, one of the most moving and powerful pictures of grief, I find it hard to read and even think about is told to us in 2 Samuel chapter 18 verses 33 and following and then again in chapter 19 verse 4 when David hears of his son Absalom's death he goes to his private chamber at the top of his house and we're told in 2 Samuel 18 verses 33 and following the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gates and wept and as he wept he said oh my son Absalom my son my son Absalom would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And then we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 19 verse 4 that his grief becomes very public and we're told the king covered his face in verse 4 and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son, Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. How many of us have prayed that for our mums, for our dads? We've cried out in longing for our nephews. For our nieces, for our husbands, our wives, our daughters, our brothers, our sisters, our hearts have been riven with grief. And Job, as Job goes through the pain of losing almost everything, we are told that his heart is bereft. In Job chapter 16 verse 16 we read, My face is red with weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids. As Job's losses and sorrows engulf him, his life is changed forever. His reputation is gone in Job chapter 1 verses 6 to 12. His family and his livelihood is taken from him in Job chapter 1 verses 13 to 21. We read of his health going in Job chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. Of his friendships being destroyed and corrupted in Job chapter 2 verses 11 to 13. His finances are gone Are gone his assumptions are shattered and his self-righteousness is exposed and he is forced to explore the ultimate questions of faith how do we make sense of life amidst the profoundest sorrows and suffering we read of his story and his questions in job chapter 3 verses 11 to 26 will there ever be an end to the sorrows and the pains of life he asks in chapter 7 where is god in the midst of darkness he asks in chapter 9 he comes to regard his own life with deep contempt and resentment in chapter 10. And he cries out to God in words that send a shudder down any human spine. Withdraw your hand from me, he cries in Job thirteen twenty one. He is tormented and stretched by death and loss. And he cries out in verse 14 of chapter 14, the ultimate question. If mortals die, will they live again? Here is a man deeply acquainted with death with sorrow, with uncertainty. His story has something important to say to us today in our generation as we walk through the shadowlands of the COVID-19 pandemic and we try to make sense of a world that is fundamentally changed by what we are going through. As I speak to you this afternoon, 42 and a half thousand people almost have died in the UK and over one million worldwide. A thousand people a day dying in the US and in India. Job has been forced into the crucible of pain by his words and his words and his story echo down through the centuries, rebounding in the chambers of our own hearts at a time when sorrow and loss seem to be engulfing the world. Grief, loss and death, so often kept sanitised by our language and our cultural concealers, have come banging on the doors of our homes around the world. Watching the news has become a ritual of astonishment and heartbreak. As we watch numbers rise and don't know what's going to happen. Do you remember when the UK government said it would be doing well if it contained deaths to 20,000? Other countries around the world face devastating impact of the pandemic and are facing death and despair in huge ways. Mali has an estimated one ventilator per one million people. Kenya has 550 intensive care beds for a population of more than 50 million. On a continent that has faced the pressures of Ebola, tuberculosis, HIV, and other infectious diseases, COVID 19 is being catastrophic. And in South America, it's laying waste to homes and families right across the subcontinent. In circumstances like this, death can become overwhelming and we can turn it into a news story, something that we read about or a set of statistics that we hear or we analyse. There's probably good reason for that. How can we possibly imagine the suffering and the sorrow that this pandemic is carrying in its wake? Behind every single statistic though, there is a human face. Because behind every death, there is a face. As I record this message for you, I buried someone today and I'm preparing to bury someone else tomorrow. Through this pandemic, I've buried a number of people, including husbands and wives that have died within days of each other. It's difficult. It is hard. I've buried people that have died of COVID and people that haven't because even in the midst of the pandemic, other causes of death are still happening. I run a nightly ministry called Night Prayer on Facebook on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Sundays and thousands of people bring prayer requests, hundreds and hundreds of eyes on every time we gather. And we hear of people facing the ultimate loss and pain and despair and sorrow because death... It's not simply a statistic, it's a reality that we must grapple with. The people that die leave behind husbands and wives and friends and sons and daughters and parents. Families aren't just losing numbers, they're losing loved ones. It's happening everywhere and it's happening to everyone. And sisters and brothers, Christians are not immune from this heartbreak. Whilst many believe that the scriptures can be read, and I do too, and that we can read them in hope and confidence over ourselves, using them as a panacea is not such a good idea. Godly people have died from COVID-19. We aren't immune from it, and we shouldn't pretend that we are. A theology that claims protection but doesn't face reality does more harm than good. It might well work for those who feel that they have been spared because of their prayers or their faithfulness, but it leaves in shards, like glass pieces, the despair of those who have prayed for loved ones and lost them. I, like you, am praying for grace and wisdom and protection for everyone, particularly for those that I love and care about. But I'm also aware that there are many whom I know who have already become sick and some that I know that have died. Either I'm not praying properly or my approach to this outbreak needs to be reconsidered. I want to help people face death as a pastor with confidence. I want them to walk through sorrow with a sense of God's presence. I want them to face uncertainty with a sense that someone is there and to walk through it authentically and honestly, not despairingly, but allowing God to meet them at the point of their sorrow and their pain. I don't think we should be indulging short-term escapism and I don't want to declare false promises to people. I'm a pastor and a public theologian And I'm trying my best to guide my congregation and others in this nation and around the world through this pain and through this uncertainty. We have daily prayer times. I'm writing articles. I'm recording messages like this. I'm listening to people. I'm walking with them through sorrow. I'm thinking hard about what it means to have a better understanding of suffering and pain and loss, what our words of hope might look like, and how we just sit with people in their despair and in their pain and sometimes say nothing and just listen. I've spent time with Elam pastor's wives who have died in service and as they have come to terms with their husband's death they're trying to work it out. I don't have answers for them but I do have time. I'm calling a number of people every day to check on them. We as a church are involved in the community. We're helping our hospitals. We're serving and supporting the vulnerable. We're sharing the hope of God's grace and the promise of God's comfort to those who are sick or worried or grieving. I have over a hundred people a day contacting me from around the world of loved ones who have lost someone to COVID asking for help. Thousands who have read my book, tens of thousands who are being impacted by the truths that it contains as it tries to help people think about good grief. As a father and a grandfather and as a husband, I'm trying to support my own family. My wife is a respiratory specialist and lectures in nursing and respiratory care. She has brittle asthma and is in an extreme vulnerability with this virus. My son is the same. He lives in Wales. Can't get home to me for my 50th birthday tomorrow um, now because of what's happening with Covid. Our first grandchild was born on the 16th of March. Our next one is due on the 14th of December. One of our sons is getting married on the 14th of November. Two of our children moved during the pandemic and everything was thrown up into the air as we've tried to make sense of all of this. My sister who is now alone having lost Her only child and her husband is trying to make sense of this as well and she's going into periods of huge mourning where she can't visit graves and she needs help and support but I'm not allowed to get to her and she's not allowed to get to me. My father-in-law is in the last stages of dementia. My wife can't get to him. Her mum can't get to see him. It's hard, isn't it? Sorrow and grief are hard. What we need, what we desperately need is a theology of death. A theology that helps us understand, more biblically, what sorrow, grief and mourning are, and how we work our way through them. Sisters and brothers, a theology of death is not an admittance of defeat or of despair. Humans hate death because we were made for life. We struggle with it because it isn't what we want and it's not what we're made for. We run from it as an ultimate enemy. But too often, our theology of death and of suffering is one of fear, anxiety and uncertainty. That's probably the root reason that so many Christians take a stance of declaring life over themselves and others. If you're always living in the shadow of death, you'll do everything you can to avoid it, won't you? When we fail to adequately reflect biblically on life and death theologically, we'll end up taking positions that are broken at best and damaging at worst. It's only when you and I can be honest about what we hate about death that we can begin to form a response to it that will carry us through the pain of it. In order to separate our feelings of ultimate despair and therefore ultimate fear from our experience of death or to help others to do the same, we have to find a way of facing it honestly, hopefully and helpfully. What does it mean to face death honestly? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 26 and 27 that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Understanding that for myself and helping others understand it opens a door to being honest, to being vulnerable and to being open about my heartbreak, my pain, my confusion and my loss. Job's story teaches me a great deal about that. The deep darkness that was on his eyelids as he walked through the valleys of sorrow and loss is actually the same phrase that is used in Psalm 23 verse 4 that speaks of God walking through the valley of shadow or the valley of the shadow of death with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Death does feel like a darkness descending. It does bring uncertainty and pain and the questioning of faith with it. If we don't acknowledge those realities, then we're locking ourselves and others away into a world where sorrow, pain and heartbreak and loss are only negative things. But darkness is also in the Bible used as an image of sorrow and of hope of encounter a place where God meets us to enter the darkness biblically is also to enter the place where God can be encountered so much of my life has been lived in shadows of so many different kinds I say in good grief death has been a shadow despair has been a shadow disappointment has been a shadow tragedy has been a shadow hurt has been a shadow Uncertainty has been a shadow. Failure has been a shadow. I can no more avoid the darkness of death than I can the light of life. Darkness as a metaphor for death, shadows as a metaphor for sorrow and mists as a metaphor of mourning. All open ways of me being honest about death. These metaphors, darkness, mists and shadows are used in scripture in positive ways too. God is encountered in the darkness. Shadows prove the presence of light. The mists of uncertainty or questioning can lead to new discoveries of faith and hope. That's what Job learns. Job 42, the very end of the book, verse 2. I have come to believe that no plan of God can be thwarted. I have seen you with my eyes, but now I have experienced you, he says, after all of his pain. Being honest about the darkness and the uncertainty of death helps us to avoid the great moral crisis of being afraid to be honest. One of the great quotes that I think is very challenging for us is this. One of the moral diseases we communicate to one another in society comes from huddling together in the pale light of an insufficient answer to a question we are afraid to ask. There is a laziness that pretends to dignify itself by the name despair and teaches us to ignore both the question and the answer. And there is the despair which dresses itself up as science or philosophy and amuses itself with clever answers to clever questions, none of which have anything to do with the real problems of life. That's a a challenging thought and a challenging quote from Thomas Merton. As we reflect, we don't need to be drowned by despair in order to find hope and comfort. Somehow we have to find a way of uh, meeting God, of being touched by him, changed by him and transformed by him. Being honest about our grief gives us the opportunity to be honest and open about what God can say to us and in us and through us. I wonder today if some of you need to be honest about the sorrows that you're facing, honest about the pain and the distress. You see, if I or you are to address death and loss honestly, grief has to be faced with authenticity and vulnerability. I must find a way of facing it, not as a friend, but as an enemy. Being honest about how it makes me feel and finding a deeper, better, clearer, biblical answer than well it will never happen to me or to anyone that I love. It might feel harsh but actually this is the path that leads to hope. Being able to address mourning and grief honestly because Christianity believes that alongside the honest pain and heartbreak we can have hope. To face death hopefully then is to be able to face it with a better set of convictions and ideas. Once I'm able to be honest about sorrow and grief... I'm in a better place to face it and to name it. When I name death as a squatter rather than as a friend, I'm able to wrestle with it and fight its negative impact on me and on those that I love. When I understand that my sorrow may try to consume me and make me feel like the world would stop, but the world doesn't stop, I'm actually able to plot a pathway through my daily choices and change my posture so that I can face death and loss with hope. When I understand that death is a jumbled journey and sorrow is a jumbled journey, not a linear one, it helps me realise that I'm not going mad when everything feels as if it's going backwards one day and forwards the next. When I root myself in understanding grief as seasonal, I'm able to notice both the positive and the negative impacts of sorrow and loss in my life and adjust my actions accordingly and timetable my emotions and allow myself space to think. By naming my feelings, by being honest about them, I can enter into them more fully and I can set them aside when I need to. When I learn to live in life as both a major key of joy and a minor key of uncertainty and sorrow, I'm able to hear the deeper music of hope in my soul. Nowhere, nowhere other than in Christ's own resurrection is this more powerfully evident than in the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, the story that we began with and the story that we will end with. Martha and Mary, confronted by their brother's death, wonder why Jesus hasn't come to help them. Jesus allows his friend to die and as a result is confronted by the deep heartbreak and pain of his sisters and Jesus' friends. His probing exchange with them around the nature of life and death in John 11 needs to be read slowly, meditatively and humbly, with our ears open to the hope of God's promises that death is not the end. When my brother died in March two thousand and at uh, sixteen, it was this story that carried me through, particularly the promise of Jesus to Martha, your brother will live again. Yet Jesus let Lazarus die. He didn't tell Mary and Martha not to grieve. He didn't dismiss their heartbreak. He didn't assure assume assure them that everything would be fine in an hour. He didn't tell them to stop crying. Instead He wept, he entered into the grief and the sorrow and the loss that they were experiencing as part of the journey to resurrection. He didn't just comfort them though, he redeemed sorrow. As he resurrected Lazarus, he was giving us an assurance of resurrection too. This, sisters and brothers, is the hopeful heartbeat at the heart of Christian faith. Not that we avoid death, but rather that death does not have the last word. It is swallowed up in the words of St Paul. We are still on this side of the experience of death, but we will not remain on this side of it. By resurrecting Lazarus, Jesus shows us that we will be resurrected. The foundational reality of the New Testament is not that we avoid death, but that we pass through death and into life. Death is not the end. Death does not have the last word. Instead of promising people that they will be fine in this season and quoting Bible verses out of context and lulling them into a false sense of security... That the COVID-19 infection will not touch them. This infection, this season that we are in in the world should remind us that we believe in something stronger than death, we believe in life. Our security and our hope and our peace and our strength and our ultimate satisfaction and our fulfillment is not rooted in whether we are healthy or sick, whether we are rich or poor, whether we are free from COVID-19 or infected. Our hope and security and freedom and peace is rooted in the promise that Christ has overcome death. He is the way, the truth and the life and nothing, even a pandemic, nothing can separate us from the love of God and Christ. Death tells us that we'll never see our loved ones again but death is a liar. We're not defined by our circumstances. We are refined by them. Grief does not consume us. It reveals us. When we realise that, we at last come to the place where we can face death helpfully. Hopefully, honestly and now helpfully. Our assumptions are exposed by death. Our broken theology is revealed. Our penchant to cling to circumstances more than to Christ is made evident. It might feel unhelpful to hear that but in the end it is liberating. The idols that we build our lives upon are dethroned as we face, face death Honestly. So much of our Christianity has become focused on the here and the now, what God can do for me now, what God gives me now. In the overused phrase of the last decades, we have developed an overrealized eschatology. Our already is often far more important than our not yet. Whilst we've run away from the old idea that we can be too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly use, I think maybe we've run too far. Many of us are now too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly use. Facing death, hopefully, even in the midst of a pandemic, means realising again that we have the hope of heaven, the promise of life after life after death, yes that's the phrase, life after life after death, and that even death cannot separate us from God. Of course this all leaves us realising that there's much more needed and to be thought through in our faith and our view of the world and of how we live. It forces us to a position of humility where we acknowledge our frailties and our weaknesses and our fears and maybe We need to be honest about the fact that our faith may not be as strong as we always say it is. Letting go of those that we love is painful. I don't think we ever let them go, do we? We hold their memories and their love in our hearts like droplets. They scent our souls. Their memories linger as we look at a photograph or we approach an anniversary or we simply recollect moments shared. Their impact on us lingers. We feel their loss acutely and if we could many of us would want just another moment with those that we have lost. None of this is weak. None of this is wrong. It's just honest. I will continue to do my best to help my family and those around me to think about these things and to think them through myself. I have been changed by grief and I have been changed for the better. My mourning has meant something to me. My heartbreak has opened my soul to more of God's grace. My suffering has reordered me It has changed me forever. If we let him, this is what God does with the heartbreak that we face and the sorrow that we endure. I've come to see God more clearly and love him more closely whilst understanding him less than I ever have. He has taken the torn fragments of my soul and he has held them tenderly in his hands. Grief, sorrow and loss have helped him to put help me to put him back at the centre of my life and allow me to leave my broken heart in his hands. This is good grief and I am thankful to God for it. Could it be that if we could develop as Pentecostals and as Christians a theology of hopefulness and wholeness and healing, a theology that says that death is not the end and that we have a better story to tell, that we could be a stronger, clearer witness in the world, maybe we would be humbler, maybe we would be more attractive. God, by His Spirit, is ministering to you today. Some of you come with recent sorrows, some with sorrows that are very, very many years carried in your heart and in your soul. I pray that as you explore what good grief means and what it looks like, that God will come close to you and you will reach a vulnerable, honest, and open space where. In the fissures of your life, in the cracks in the porcelain of your heart, the light of grace, hope, mercy and comfort can shine out to the world. May God meet you, minister to you and strengthen you as you continue through this series. Thank you for listening to me. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. To find out more, visit our website at citychurchcardiff.com or find us on social media.